Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am speaking with Richard Prum once again on the podcast. Uh, Richard uh, was previously on the podcast, uh, number episode number 73, entitled The Evolution of Beauty. Uh, this was back uh, over two years ago now, which is wild to think about. In that conversation, we spent much of the time discussing his book, The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. Uh, this time around, we are talking about his new book called Performance All the Way Down, Genes, Development, and Sexual Difference. Uh, that's what uh, most of the conversation uh, is about this time. Uh, as a reminder, Richard is quite established in the world of ornithology. He is the William Robertson Co. Professor of Ornithology of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University. He's also head curator of vertebrae zoology and ornithology at Peabody Museum of Natural History. Uh, he's most known for uh, his phylogenic ethology of polygynous birds. He's also studied different fossils, evolution of feathers. And uh, in, in this conversation, he's taking a, a slightly different approach to what he usually does. So the book, uh, the new one, um, Performance All the Way Down, is not really about birds. Instead, it's about sex and gender, something that he has been really interested in. And he talks about kind of his motivations for this uh, early in the first you know, um, bit of the conversation. So he gives a kind of a, a reasoning of why himself as a trained ornithologist is, you know, studying about uh, sex and gender more broadly. Uh, we talk kind of in the beginning about how this has become a kind of controversial or sometimes inflammatory topic. Uh, we define sex, what that means, sex and gender says the difference. We talk about natural uh, kinds and classes. We talk about sex as history versus um, being for an individual. We talk about the materialist feminist framework and performativity. We talk about gender as an extended phenotype of sex, gender performativity, genes and chromosomes, Wolfian and Muller and ducks, the role of hormones, intersex uh, folks, uh, and the future of, of gender and sex. Again, um, obviously, this is a topic that creates a lot of controversy nowadays. Um, and so I, I really wanted to get Richard's thoughts and his voice and his book was, you know, well researched. Uh, I liked how detailed it was and really helpful to, I think, engage with people of you know all different thoughts on on something so um, fundamental to us and that people get really um, passionate about. And I think the, the big takeaway for me in this conversation was just how much plasticity and flexibility there is within biology and that we have many, you know, kind of the standard model. We have many um, ideas about biology for many decades. And I think one of the things is if, you know, people are doing a good faith work, good, good science, we update and we try to figure out where does this continue to move? Do we continue to have the same ideas? What changes? What doesn't? And I think that's at the very least uh, the project that Richard is trying to do is, you know, as he very, very nicely says in the conversation, you know, he was challenged by many different things, things he had learned and, you know, trying to keep moving forward uh, in time and, and forward with biology. And so it, I think his perspective is, is just absolutely important. 
Um, and the book is great. So um, big, big uh, recommendation uh, to go and get his book. As always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at my Substack. That's the best way to find uh, find me in the conversations. You can uh, subscribe. You can obviously share with your friends. You can uh, contribute if you'd like. Uh, and engage in conversation uh, there as well about all of the, this episode or any of the other episodes you're uh, listening to. Uh, you can also find me on YouTube. Same thing. You can subscribe over there and follow. Uh, shared widely. And... Um, now I bring him, Richard Prum. I am here with Richard Prum. Uh, Richard, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. We we had a yeah, we had a we had a fabulous time last time. I, you you wrote a fantastic book uh, last time. You wrote another great one uh, this time. So you got another one out. I think if I recall, uh, when we when we were talking, I think you were in the process of writing this or you were somewhere in this stage of writing this book. And I was very curious for it. Yeah. Yeah. This is, uh, um, a a new, a new project. Uh, it went from back burner to, uh, essential and you know Mm -hmm. what you think about when you wake up at five in the morning (laughs) kind of project. And, uh, so, uh, I'm glad it will be, uh, out in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the book, uh, is called, Performance All the Way Down, Genes, Development, and Sexual Difference. This is out through uh, uh, Chicago Press. Uh, it's great. Uh, I really loved it. It uh, pushed me in some ways, challenged my thinking. I, I really I loved how specific and detailed it was. There's some really great stuff in here. Um, what, what, so let's just briefly, I mean, people may have listened to the, the uh, previous conversation we had. So just give us the, the 90-second snapshot of, of you professionally, development, or um, in terms of your academics and what you're currently sure. doing uh, uh, at the moment. Sure. I, I'm an ornithologist, a bird fanatic. I work on evolutionary biology of birds. Um, that has, over the years, encompassed lots of things from phylogeny, you know, who's related to whom in the bird tree of life, and uh, lots of things with behavior and uh, and, and and courtship display and uh uh, a lot of work interested in, in aesthetic evolution, sort of birds as um, aesthetic agents in their own evolution. Um, uh, but, you know, some of my work is, you know, physics and, and some of it's game theory and some of it's genetics. And, and that, uh, that mix is, uh, has been really exciting. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we talked about, uh, was it Evolution of Beauty? Is that the title? I think that's yeah. right. It's a great book. Um, and so we did talk about a lot about aesthetics. So your background is in ornithology. And so I guess the first question people may ask you address it in the book. So it's fair game. I'll ask you, why is it, yeah. why is an ornithologist interested in things about uh, gender and sex and genetics and, and for humans? Why, why is, uh, what kind of, what kind of gotten to your crawl and said, I need to, I need to not only think about it, but I got to yeah. write about it and have everyone <laughs> read it and, and uh, have their opinions on it. Why, what, what made you want to do it? Yeah. Well, you know, it, uh, the book is primarily about, uh, the material body, hmm. the sexual body and how it grows, how it develops and the relationship between genes and the body. Hmm. I started down this path, uh, because in the evolution of beauty, we, um, and in previous search with uh, Professor Patty Brennan at, at Mount Holyoke, who was a postdoc in my lab at the time, uh, we discovered that, you know, freedom of choice matters to animals. Mm-hmm. This had to do with sexual violence and coerced uh, sexual uh, assault in, in, in ducks. 
And, and what we discovered is that, you know, there's something it's like to have freedom of choice and there are evolved responses to when that's a, a bridge and, and a, a, a by coercion and violence. And that led me to think very specifically that this was a, a feminist discovery in science, not feminist in the sense of, of, uh, well, we have a set of politics that we're going to develop scientific mm-hmm. research on the base of, mm-hmm. but that the, that we discovered that the fundamental uh, properties of, uh, of a feminist analysis of, of, of sex roles and sex violence in, in human cultures uh, uh, turned out to be sort of empirically demonstrable in animals, mm-hmm. right? That there was something, uh, uh, you know, beyond the human or, if you will, post-human about this. And so I got into that idea, but I also realized that it was a gut response. It was undefended. Mm. in terms of actual feminist philosophy or analysis. So, so I decided that as a biologist, it'd be a really great idea to start reading in this literature. Mm. Mm. And I started with feminist critiques of, of evolutionary biology, of which there whole rich literature. Mm. Um, and then, and then, and, and then into more fundamental sort of uh, feminist and queer theory philosophy, if you will, uh, mm. of the body and, and of gender, et cetera. And, and at first it was very alienating, right? I mean, these people, a lot of these authors are very pissed off, right? And, and, I, and I understand that. I was sympathetic with a lot of arguments. But um, I also felt that there wasn't um, the move to actually try to fix science mm. in response to the critiques, right? Mm. And so I felt kind of defensive as a scientist going, wow, you know, but, 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 you know, we can do better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and then it was, in, in fact, a, a, a series of ideas, particularly uh, – um, from essentially kicked off in the 1990s by uh, Judith Butler, a feminist philosopher at Berkeley mm-hmm. on gender performativity and, and other work, especially work by a feminist physicist and philosopher Karen Barad at UC Santa Cruz that, uh, about gender performativity and performativity in science that led me to sort of start going, wait a minute, there's some real connections here mm-hmm. between biology and this this, this, this particular strain of, of, of queer theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that originally I thought that this would be kind of an area of rapprochement where we could find common vocabulary between feminist theory and, and biology. But as I started really thinking about applying the idea to biology, in particular the development of human sex, uh, sexual anatomy, I realized that it was predictive. Mm. I realized that I'd gone another step further that that queer theory had changed the way I think about science. Hmm. And that's when I realized that it was a much bigger project, that it was a, a, essentially a book. It was a, a book that would require, um, you know, a, a, a previous, you know, or very rare mix, hmm. previously unheard of a very rare mix between, you know, uh, uh, queer theory and molecular genetics. Mm-hmm. And kind of equivalent uh, uh, density or equivalent uh, granularity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, and, um, you know, at first I thought that what I really wanted to write was a small book, like a slim book, mm-hmm. a book so small that you, that an undergraduate might be able to steal it mm-hmm. off, off the, off the coffee table mm-hmm. in another suite in the dorm and take it home to read because they might not want to admit to everybody that they were really interested mm-hmm, in it. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, steal this book basically. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But um, but then I found out, you know, at, at, through writing it, that that was very hard. Um, in fact, to write briefly or very efficiently about a, a topic subject to enough differences of opinion and historic burden as sex was, was, was difficult and, and ultimately irresponsible. So it became a bigger book with a lot more, a lot more details, a lot more support, a lot, et cetera. So that's, that's, how, that's how I ended up here. And, 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 and certainly it's been um, uh, really, really motivating and was fascinating courses. How much of my own sort of scientific uh, interests are actually brought along and, and involved in this, mm. in this, um, in this project. Mm. Well, I can imagine that any anything you write afterwards, if you if you write uh, more about uh, uh, birds and, and everything about birds, it, it will probably be somewhat different now. You'll have a different lens now of how you how you're conceptualizing and, and, and looking at the, the data. Yeah, and I and I and I'd only say I'm only I'm only just beginning, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, the kind of some of the recommendations uh, in the book are, are are pretty are pretty profound, pretty major, and and I would admit to to readers who might think um, uh, that you know some of these ideas are radical or scary in a sense or challenging. Uh, I'll say you know they were challenging to me. Mm-hmm. I did not start this project. Mm-hmm thinking that I would end up where I, where I was, but I was led there by, by the clarity of the science, mm-hmm. by the productivity of the ideas. Mm-hmm. And so that's when, of course, that's when it gets really fun. Uh, but, you know, I've been as challenged as, um, as most readers will, mm-hmm. will be. So the, the idea of, of sex and gender is uh, not controversial at all nowadays. <laughs> Many people, uh, you know, uh, are, are probably going to be upset about a lot of these things. And you're going to have some folks that are going to be very much uh, aligned and you're going to have some, some folks that are going to be very uh, perturbed or upset. I guess before we get into some of the critiques uh, of some of this stuff somewhere in the conversation, why do you think it is that uh, these topics about sex and gender become a bit inflammatory sometimes? Is it, is it because of we're talking about the essence of, of, of the physical nature of what it means to be human? Is it because of our, uh, we wrap up identity with it? So what is it that you think animates people so much about this topic, um, you know, all, all over the place? Well, one of the interesting uh, phenomena is that we have this, um, you know, both cultural diversity and historic change in what we actually think about these topics. Mm. Anyone who, it, 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 even the most conservative f- folks, would admit that, you know, gender and gender presentation is changing. We're not dressing in the same way. We're not uh, signaling in the same way that we did 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Right. right. And, 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 and there's aspects of, 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 uh, of, of, of gender that are, that are subject to change, right? And yet, um, somehow or other, uh, in common with many other um, responses to, you know, the recent century or more of change in conceptions of gender, um, um, many people have responded, both scientists and non-scientists, in a very conservative fashion. Mm. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, well, you know, interesting, with lots of topics, we find that more exposure, more times people know uh, a family member, a 
friend, an office mate, et cetera, mm-hmm. that, that bring some kind of new um, appreciation of gender sex diversity into, into their own lives, the more open they, be, they become, mm-hmm. right? Or the more, or the more uh, you know, accepting of change they can, they can be. Mm. Um, uh, but clearly, yeah, it has become uh, a, an, an, an important topic. And I think it's one um, uh, that, you know, has, uh, you know, been, is, is being well-funded and utilized uh, because it's, it's causing division. Because lots of people, you know, profit uh, oh, or you know, make their living sure. by, 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 uh, by creating that kind of division. Well, I'm 100%. And I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a fan of any of that. So I, 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 it's a very true, true thing. So let's let's talk about uh, some definitions. Now I know some people. This is where the conversation starts and ends. That will not be the case with me. I, I hate <laughs> I hate discussions just about definitions. But I, I guess two things here. First, uh, let's let's start with sex uh, and how we think about. Uh, I guess you could say biological sex. I guess that's kind of a, a redundancy. But when we when we say sex, what what are, what has been the traditional view? I think traditionally it's been the binary, right? Um, and what is the emerging consensus or much of what you talk about in the book or where we're at now? And what is the need to show why the binary is maybe not as um, robust of a picture as maybe it has been for many, 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 many years? So I guess that's three questions. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, that's, and that's a core, core issue. You know, when I uh, first watched the project, I really thought of the definition of sex it's actually kind of a result, right? I mean, if I've thought through this and that point, and if I can support that idea and defend it against that critique, then at the end, we can say, okay, so what is sex, right? And, 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 and feel that we've come to a conclusion. But you can't write a book that way because you have to talk about the topic already <laughs> for hundreds of pages. So, you know, you, you, you got you to gotta pony it up. Uh-huh. And, and, and so it, it, I have done that in, in, in this book very early on. Um, you know, the first thing I'd say then is like, you know, there's a lot of things uh, that people think are obvious hmm. uh, that that turn out science finds out are actually more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. One, of course, is the, you know, the evident flatness of the earth, right? When we look around <laughs> us, right? Or, or, or the obvious or the, you know, certainly seems obvious independence of space and time. Uh, and yet science actually tells us that these things that we so certain of, or were at some points so certain of, turn out to be wrong or at least complicated, mm-hmm. right? And I think that um, there's lots of reasons uh, why um, the complicated issue of sex and its definition uh, have been uh, um, um, uh, difficult for us to perceive. I think the real reason, of course, as well, is that there have been a lot of cultural forces that have been really, uh, you know, uh, uh, um, um, exploiting that that difficulty in, in, in trying to make it simple. So what is sex? Well, you know, um, to me as an evolutionary biologist, I think what we could say most fundamentally is, uh, uh sex is, a, a one word that we use to describe a certain system of reproduction, mm-hmm. usually, uh, uh, that involves, uh, the production of gametes, you know, half of the DNA of, of, of one, one generation being recombined to make a new generation of individuals. So that's sexual reproduction that goes back, um, you know, uh, over a mi- uh, you know billion and a half years in in, in our history, mm-hmm. and then another f- level that we talk about sex is is the the idea of uh, gametes that are distinct 
one of those gametes being small and motile and, and uh, what we often refer to as sperm. Mm-hmm. And they're being larger and less mobile that we often refer to as, uh, as an egg. Um, and interestingly, this, site, this phenomenon has actually evolved multiple times in the history of life. So even though sperm and egg and plants, kind of plants and, and, and animals, mm-hmm. they're not actually homologous, the ancestor that did not have that feature, right? So sperm and egg are like a great evolutionary idea that's involved multiple times. Mm. Um, and then another level that we talk about sex is, is, is imagining or when we perceive that there are bodies specialized at reproducing in one way or another through the production of sperm or the production of eggs Mm -hmm. exclusively, Mm -hmm. right? And of course, there are classes of plants and animals that that make both of them and reproduce in both ways simultaneously. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the ground level. So for me, this last area, the embodied sex or individual sex, you'd say, the sex of an individual organism, including a person, is probably best described as what I would call a cluster of reproductive homologies. Mm -hmm. That is a cluster of embodied anatomies or physiological abilities that contribute to a capacity to reproduce. Mm. Now, a lot of people would find that unsatisfying because actually we have a lot of individuals that we assign in the culture sex to, yeah. even though they're not either capable of reproducing, maybe because they're too old or too young mm-hmm. or sterile or, or whatever, right? And yet we still have you know adamant notion that this a youthful person that's too young to reproduce actually has a sex. Mm-hmm. So we use it in much larger ways. And, and, and that leads to um, a challenge, right? Um, and, and that challenge has been typically that people think of sex as something that can be defined. And, you know, this is a frequent in, uh, um, in current rhetoric where a senator will ask a, a witness, how do you define a, a woman, right? In, in, a, in a hearing, of course, um, um, the challenge is, of course, that the the um, the biological literature has really had a hard time doing that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so we've been kind of propping ourselves up with the confident notion um, that we can define individual sex, and and traditionally that's been done by um, over history by a set of chromosomes, mm-hmm. by uh, at some point uh, the, the the roles of certain hormones. More recently, since the discovery of DNA and the advent of uh, molecular genetics and all sorts of you know, particular genes having been defined as, as having sex. Um, and what that reinforces the idea that individual sex is some essential fact about the, mm-hmm. the zygote, the fertilized egg, yeah. right? That, that cells have a sex, that chromosomes have a sex. Uh, and um, uh, and that this is somehow an essence mm-hmm. that feeds into this 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 what I think of as a real the most fundamental uh, scientific error. Mm-hmm. If we look at sex as something that we can actually define, that means that implies that it's a certain kind of what we would call a natural kind, and this you know gets into the you know uh, philosophy of ontology and what yeah. ways yeah. are things yeah. in the world. Natural kinds, right? I, I like that chapter of the book, though. It's it's a little it's a little in the weeds, but I, I enjoyed that though. You talk about natural kinds, I, distinctions. I, 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 think it, I think I think I think it's a concept that that has some legs. It, it does good stuff, and I think it. it so let's let's explore that. Yeah. Well, um, natural kinds are 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 the sorts of things that exist in the world without us to theorize about, mm. right? They're, they're they're really out there, and we're in that sense we're discovering them. 
And uh, one of the most traditional uh, natural kinds that we think about are, are classes. And classes are groups of entities that um, exist by virtue of their definition. Mm-hmm. Right? We can think of uh, helium atom, right? Having a particular combination of, of uh, you know, protons and neutrons and et cetera, and uh, electrons, or a, a diamond, mm-hmm. which is a carbon molecule made up of carbons in a tetrahedral lattice, right? And, and so anything that meets that definition is automatically uh, a member of that class. Right. Um, and that's very useful for science. I think people have mistaken sex uh, as uh, as a as a as a class, mm. as a natural kind that could be defined. Mm. But there are other kinds of natural kinds in the world and uh, that are scientifically relevant and really important. And they are what we refer to as individuals or historical entities. So in, in, in contrast to a natural kind like um, like helium or diamonds, um, Let's imagine um, me, right? I'm a natural, I'm, I exist in the world, yes. <laughs> regardless yes. of anybody's theory of it. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, right? and, 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 and uh, I had a birth and uh, ultimate death, some thriving, some possibility for reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that individuality, that persistence over time mm. is a kind of, 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 of way of existing. Mm. And uh, it doesn't just apply to me. It applies to things like Homo sapiens, all of humans, or all of mammals. Mammalia is another kind of natural kind. Or it applies as well to, um, uh, to homologies, like eyeballs or limbs, right? These are things that have an origin. They have a diversification. Yeah. They persist through time, and at some point they may go extinct, yeah. right? So I think that, 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 that sex is actually... Uh, a natural kind, a historical kind, hmm. right? And that individual sex um, is, uh, is a, uh, as we'll find out, a becoming, an individualized uh, realization of reproductive possibilities. Hmm. And so that difference between um, individual sex and historical sex is, uh, is, is part of the, 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 the subtlety of this argument. Hmm. So, um, you know, I, I, I hope someday that that subtlety could stand up at a Senate hearing. <laughs> Uh, but uh, it, it, it will take uh, some uh, exercise in, uh, in, in thinking it through. Mm. So one question I hear about this, and maybe, maybe we'll get to it, but I guess the question I have is, is that for so long, and again, as, as science evolves and, and, and we learn more things and we do more, more data, we've always had the uh, kind of in the traditional, if you will, model this binary. And so it's, it's very much ingrained. I mean, that's how I was taught. That's how most of us are taught um, that it's this way. And so it's one of those things like it is hard once you kind of see it. And as you kind of said, this kind of essential feature of, of what it means to be a male or female historically. But I guess the question is, is that if, if, we're, if, we're, just, if we're taking out the terms for a minute and we're seeing uh, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a group of uh, organisms that have uh, large gametes and others that have smaller gametes. And those fit within, let's take the kind of standard bell curve, you know, 68% or 70 or 80% of an organism. What aren't we always for, for folks that, or as you're saying, individuals that fall, maybe not anywhere there in that kind of middle majority 
these would be exceptions to what we commonly see or we most often see. And isn't it always a kind of, I guess for some people, but maybe not, but a sort of comparison that people are on the, you know, standard deviation out two, three or whatever, where we're talking about these, um, uh, these, these motions where in that organism, you're going to see certain um, uh, differences that aren't kind of the large or small gamete or however you want to look at it, you're always kind of comparing it back to what's in the majority of things, which is still kind of that kind of binary thing. So even if you do say about classes and kinds, don't we have, is it, and I'm not saying it's the right way, I guess to say, but it, isn't it common yeah. that it's, well, we just see a lot of large and small gametes and they have these kind of features and it mostly falls out this way. But there are, of course, other uh, differences, you know, outside of the standard deviation. What do you think about this kind of framing? Yeah. So, so uh, that sort of um, is appealing to the, the, you know, the obviousness of, mm-hmm. of, of, of Zach, right? And, and, and the numbers are much higher, of course. It's, it's way higher than 80%. It's higher than 95%. It's, it's you, know, you know, probably higher than 98%, right, of individuals uh, developing co- specific structured capacities to reproduce that, 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 um, um, uh, uh, you know, eliminate other possibilities, right. And that these possibilities, of course, interact in a particular way, you know, uh, to, to function. Um, sorry, you know, what I, what I really, what I really, yeah. well, I was just going to make a, a note here. We would see this around many multicellular organisms, not just humans. We would see this with mammals, with, with certain types of plants. We would see this in other forms of biology as well. Yeah. Of course, of course, there's a lot, there are, there are, uh, there are uh, other big variations, right? Mm-hmm. Huge number of plants mm-hmm. are simultaneously producing ova mm-hmm. and, 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 uh, and sperm and, and pollen. Mm-hmm. Right. And each of those those generations actually multicellular. So they, mm-hmm. they don't have whole independent lives, or except in mosses, where mm-hmm. when you look at a moss, you're looking at the haploid. Mm-hmm. You're looking at, the, at the, 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 essentially like a multicellular mm-hmm. uh, organism mm-hmm. with half the gametes and the, and the, and the sexual phase. The, mm-hmm. the, the sporophytes are, 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 are microscopic, mm-hmm. right? Kind of inverse of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so lots of variation. And in, and in, and in some. Um, fungi and other mm-hmm. organisms they're actually mating types mm. right which are not you know not self mm-hmm. and so this would include many many more than two mm. uh, uh potential uh sexes within such a defined uh organism right um uh, uh, so yeah so the, these these phenomena are 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 are, are broad ranging but what i what i w- want to do is distinguish between uh sex as as a history, mm-hmm. and individual sex mm. as an embodied within an organism, and we often smear those together or obfuscate their differences. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, in fact, you know, going back uh, at least uh, five hundred million years to our common ancestor was starfish. Mm-hmm. Right? There has never been an organism in that lineage, including this, you know, human species, um, that wasn't the product of a sperm. Uh, fertilizing an egg mm. and there you know it developed in separate bodies that were specialized for those two things mm. right now in in the case of humans there's never been a human that wasn't the product of sperm egg um, um, gestated in a, in a human womb mm. right? and 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 that um, means that at the origin of every life 
is a is what I would refer to, what I refer to as a, as a binary bottleneck. There is a binary mm. origin to life. Mm. However, individual sex is itself, in my my view, and I think very well supported by the science, is a becoming. Mm. It's not a defined or essential feature of the zygote. Um, it is only a, a realization through development. And what that means, I mean, we, we wouldn't imagine that the zygote, the fertilized egg, has a hair color, has uh, fingerprints, or um, uh, handedness, left-handed or right-handed, right? Um, we realize those things become in the, uh, through the life. Hmm. Uh, and, and I think that, that sex is another one of those uh, aspects. Hmm. Um, so uh, I summarize, sex is a history. Hmm. That history, in, in our case, is a binary history of clusters of homologies that have evolved through interacting with each other reproductively over many, many millions of years. And then, but that history uh, cannot, in it, and its importance, you know, 100% importance to the production of individuals, is um, cannot in and of itself um, create an essence, an identity, an intention to the fertilized egg that is uh, 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 of its sex, right? And so, uh, so um, you know, individual sex is not an essence. It's not a binary. It is a becoming, and it's highly variable, and it includes all sorts of pathways, mm. right? And, and um, uh, all individuals come from some binary event, mm-hmm. Right, which is a result of a structured interaction of those those possibilities, but uh, but th- but that still can't create a, you know a, 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 an individual sexual essence. Mm. So I, I I partially understand the distinction. I, you're you're not obviously denying the as you would say the historical kind of aspects of sex that you know there's this binary bottleneck and that's how we get here 500 million years. Yep, and this becoming of this kind of sex as an individual. I guess could you say more of what in your mind, how you're conceptualizing what that looks like, uh, because maybe this is where I think there's a kind of um, gymnastics people do inadvertently, where it's like, well, well, I mean it this way, but you mean it this way. So, I, how much is we haven't talked about gender, which is a whole. I I, I load a lot of that culturally uh, uh, there. Yeah. It's not only a cultural, I don't think. But how do you see this way of, of viewing individual sex with maybe something like gender of how people are kind of a becoming. They're figuring out the embodiment of things. How, how do you kind of splice these kinds of distinctions? Yeah, I mean, the, in the in the traditional sense, people have uh, understood uh, sex to be, uh, you know, referring to biological, anatomical, physiological capacity, and and gender to be uh, those aspects of um, of of life beginning on that substrate that are culturally. Um, influenced, inflected, and, and, and functional, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and um, you know, originally that distinction was very uh, sort of progressive. Mm. Uh, feminists wanted to distinguish between gender and sex because they wanted to um, argue that, wow, culture is something we can change. Uh, biology may be harder to change, and, 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 and we're not comfortable the way uh, gender expectations on women are naturalized as biology and, mm-hmm. and you know, keeping us in, 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 a, in a subservient situation. Um, but however, more recently, as, um, you know, 
other sorts of, uh, of um, uh, gender sex variations, including sexual orientation and, uh, and trans experience and intersex experience have all been sort of influencing feminist and, 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 uh, and, 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 and queer appreciation of this matter. People have started to um, reduce the distinction between gender sex and speaking of them you know, simultaneously, mm-hmm. one of the important reasons to imagine gender sex as a, as a combination, uh, a, a rejection of a dichotomy like uh, 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 nature culture or mind and body, uh, you know, to, to, to create a, a whole view, um, is the way in which science itself, in its analysis of sex, has, has taken up theories of, and, and ideas about gender and then reified them, made them real in the science. Mm. Uh, so that so that they, they you know the, the science of 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 sex uh, being influenced by by gender mm. and and the fact is that you we um, um, it's almost impossible to do that unless you're actually willing to accept the, the, this cultural influence and then analyze it for yourself in 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 your work or your own work. Mm. So there's that complicated history. I think we still need the words um, to 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 refer to. Um, the anatomical, biological, physiological, and to the cultural, mm-hmm. um, and yet um, uh, knowing that in in reality um, they have this this um, um, feedback and simultaneity to them in in all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned the 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 gender sex uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, distinction here. Uh, this is from uh, Van Anders, I believe her her, her work. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and I I I used uh, her term uh, because I think it's the 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 the, the most appropriate way to um, uh, to address this this combination. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, and of course, it includes uh, uh, starts with a substrate of sex. We couldn't imagine, for example. In a non, uh, if there were uh, 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 an organism that was entirely clonal that had no uh, sexual reproduction whatsoever, uh, we couldn't imagine that it would have gender. So gender begins necessitates some kind of sexual reproduction substrate, but of course expanded in all sorts of cultures to include all sorts of other things that are not sexual. So it begins with the sexual and, and, and expands beyond. Hmm. Just as a clarifying point, some people make this claim, whether it's true or not, that because we see differences in, um, I guess you would see it maybe as the individual sex as opposed to historical sex, that people will think that there are uh, six or seven or eight different sexes. Is, that's not what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm not sure. There. No, no, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, w- I would say that, you know, actually... Um, uh, accommodating uh, gender sex, mm-hmm. right, you know, as a, as a, as a phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, and also, um, you know, I don't think these categories are actually that productive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Any of them, really. And so, in that sense, um, uh, two, six, I, you know, that, you know, I don't, I don't think that I don't think that does much for us. Mm. I mean, the history is binary in our in our lineage, not in in fungi or elsewhere. Yeah. Um, uh, but I would move away from uh, kind of, and one of the things in the title, you know, uh, genes development, and sexual difference, right? The the phrase sexual difference refers to discussions of variation in in the reproductive and sexual anatomy and physiology uh, in the absence of categories, mm-hmm. right? 
and as opposed to sex difference, which is a whole tradition of research uh, on the difference between male and female, mm. right? And, and so um, I think that this is biologically really productive mm. and also um, um, uh, uh, scientifically uh, productive. And, and it's actually in common or lined up with this move in, 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 in feminist and queer theory to, to think of gender sex as uh, a, 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 a complex uh, phenomenon. Mm. So tell us about, uh, you mentioned it in, uh, I think, an early start part of the book, this kind of uh, materialist feminist approach for understanding these issues. And, and you talk about kind of uh, Judith Butler's idea of gender as being performative, uh, how language and metaphor are used in science. Uh, you do talk about queer biology as being important. So I, stick with, uh, I guess, for a minute, the, the gender uh, performativity, uh, what, what uh, your understanding of what she means by that and how you're looking at that within biology and and why that's a, why is that a better framework, I guess, than maybe, you know, kind yeah. of traditional ones? Yeah. 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 Well, well, maybe, maybe the approach is to take, um, a little bit different than the, than the actual chapters in the book, but it, a path that I think takes us as quickly as possible from genes and genomes mm-hmm. to queer theory. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in this case, you know, how, how, you know, and, and, and also addresses in particular, the idea of the body as a becoming, mm-hmm. as a performance. If you will. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, you know, we're very used to the, the genome being described as a blueprint, mm-hmm. right? I found the earliest reference to the genetic blueprint comes in the 1950s, even before they'd figured out the codons, the actual series of base, of, you know, of base pairs that actually encode each of the amino acids that go into yeah. a, a protein sequence. So they're still trying to figure that out. They're already calling it a blueprint. And then uh, just a few months ago, the uh, NIH released a new human pangenome, an effort to categorize the diversity of human genomes with, in, the, in, a, in a new uh, uh, way that takes, the, you know, takes into account maximum uh, 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 account of, of human, uh, um, human diversity. Mm. And, and the director of that program described it as an effort to you know, uh, categorize the, you know, the human blueprint, mm. the genetic blueprint. So this is an enduring idea, but the blueprint is, is in a long line of kind of linguistic, uh, models, right? The idea that the body is a representation in the material world of a prior plan or, 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 essential idea mm. that's encoded in, in the genome, Right. Um, and this, if we go to the philosophy of language, uh, you know, you know, A.L. Austin and uh, one of the, uh, you know, early you know, 50s and 60s major dude in this area, um, Austin would describe this as a representational language, right? As an utterance that represents the world, like, um, you know, um, my computer is on the desk, mm-hmm. right? That utterance is descriptive and it, it tends to represent something in the real world. But Austin distinguished representational language from what he called performative language, language that performs a social action, right, rather than representing. So imagine the wedding vow, I do, or uh, the statement, you know, I think I'll bet you a hundred bucks it's going to snow tonight, right? Those are actually not representations of reality. They are making reality. They're making social reality, Mm. right? They are performing an action. So this idea of genetics as representational 
has been sort of, uh, you know, encoded, in, uh, uh, you know, the blueprint idea, which is deeply embedded in our idea, in our minds, it should, should be contrasted with another concept, which is that gene expression is performative. Hmm. That gene expression is a doing in the world, is a material active action, right? That the body is, is performing itself. And, um, and I think any, even the most superficial consideration of gene expression would confirm this idea, right? Enzymes do stuff. They catalyze reactions. Other kinds of, you know, proteins involved in regulation of genetics, uh, transcription factors and hormones and other kinds of paracrine and endocrine signals, uh, their receptors, they all do stuff in the world, right? Material world. And that, and that, and that, and that, and that stuff they're doing, right? Um, is a becoming, it's an action in the world, mm. right? Now, the idea of, of language, not just as representation, but as performing an action, had a huge impact on the humanities in, in the 60s and 70s, giving rise to you know, post-structuralism, deconstruction, and, 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 and lots of you know, radical events in, in the humanities. And what I maintain is that performative language performative analogy, the idea of performativity of language um, or of expression can have the similar kind of revolutionary impact in the sciences, particularly in the science of biology, right? And what this implies is that the body, you know, in, in humanities, the idea that language could actually not just describe reality, but make reality, influence the world, become action in the world, right, was, you know, uh, 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 had a radical effect. And, and once we see that that biology is obviously about that, that means we reject the blueprint and come to a performative analogy for, for, for genes and gene action. Hmm. And, and what's fascinating is that there is no area of philosophy or academics where performativity has been more central to the discipline than queer theory. That body of philosophy and literary criticism and, 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 and studies focused on, uh, on the causes and consequences and impact of sex and gender diversity in, in the world. Yeah. And, and so that takes us from, you know, gene blueprints to queer theory, like mm -hmm. in a really direct way. And also um, uh, reinforces a lot of the, the, the messages about how bodies actually develop, you know, and how genes actually work and the way in which our biomedical um, research system um, has been um, you know, kind of missing the point in, 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 in their effort to, to reinforce, even today, to the NIH, the blueprint concept. Mm. I guess the question I have on this is interesting. I, I could I could totally understand what you're saying about the maybe before we even getting the genome mapped and everything. You know, we have the the blueprint analogy or language or things like that. Okay, I, I could see some downsides to that for sure. I guess is it possible or is it would it be a, an aim to shoot for where we didn't have we kind of left it very neutral or we didn't have a structure or a framework. So, okay, we'll trash the blueprint one. Maybe we don't need the performative one. We just try to keep it very um, a theoretical, if you will. And you just say, you yeah, know, this yeah. is just science. 
and that's and we're just going to study it and analyze it. And you could have this concept and this theory, and you could have this theory and concept. But you know what? Here's just data, and then that's it. Is is there yeah, too yeah. much that we're oh. importing? Two, two, a couple of things there. One, one. I mean, the whole idea that you know, surprise science done by humans. <laughs> you know, <laughs> the idea that well, oh, we're just going to have data. You know, that's a that's a pipe dream. Yeah. And 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 know those biologists, many sincere and and who who, who see it that way. Uh, I mean, one way I'd ask is like, how's that working for you? Right. <laughs> I mean, the answer is, you know, that to put science up in its ivory tower, which just dealing with data and doesn't have to, to get muddied by the culture is, is, is obviously failing, right? Um, you know, science has never been under more attack, greater question. So that's not working, mm-hmm. right? So um, the other thing is that, you know, it just, especially in topics like, 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 uh, like sex and gender, um, it, it just seeps in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Judith Butler uses phrase that, you know, like the assumption of the Virgin Mary or the Virgin being taken up into heaven, these uh, things are, are, are assumed into us, into our scientific uh, consciousness, and then they become, you know, discovered in the world as if they were, you know, objective properties of the world. But, you know, we, 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 can't, we can't escape. So that's one. Um, but, you know, I, I'm a realist. I do think that, uh, I mean, my, my best hope is for, uh, for a stage of pluralism, right? Where, okay, we have a bunch of people that continue to work in a blueprint mode. And we have uh, a bunch of scientists who who are uh, fascinated by the book and interested in in, in, in in developing research programs that are explicitly, overtly uh, focused in a performative way, doing performative biology as research. And we see who's more productive, and we find that you know they're making discoveries that uh, that are have been left out of the picture, right? And of course, that's how. That's how you win the argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, that, that's totally fair. I'm, I'm definitely for pluralism, and I think that that's important. Um, so, I guess in that framework, I think you mentioned in the book what what would what can you say or what could one say is and is not performative biology? What's what are we kind of you know factoring in and factoring out in this framework here? Yeah, well, well um, uh, you know, I think it's probable it, we, th- this would make more sense. Uh, after we've talked a little bit about how genes work in a performative way to make a complicated body. Uh, but certainly there's plenty in biology that's not performative. And we think just about, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, the impact of abiotic factors like freezing, mm-hmm. you know, if, let's say if you don't, if you, you know, uh, the cold or, or wet mm-hmm. or right, these, these things do not have uh, um, any, um, um, uh, it, it, uh, you know, uh, conceptually expressive. They're not, you know, they're, 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 they're just material uh, facts of, of the environment. Mm. And so selection to act in response to them is not going to involve any kind of a performative mm. process. I think predation is another case where most of the time, um, you know, it's, it's, um, um, it, 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 it's, it won't be a, a, a performative in the slightest. Mm. However, if we go now inside of the body, we find that a huge amount of the, um, the, 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 the goings on, both of the growing body, how we get from a single cell to a trillions of integrated cells with identical genomes in, in any of our bodies, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, uh, it, it, or how we physiologically regulate, you know, going to sleep at night, mm-hmm. getting hungry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, keeping our blood sugar within appropriate levels, mm-hmm. uh, you know, et cetera, all that stuff. Um, involves um, 
the regulation of, 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 of gene expression and, and, and cellular activities that I think are deeply performative and, 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 and it fits squarely within a huge amount of what, you know, biomedics and, and, uh, and evolutionary biology are about. Mm. So I do want to ask you about, about uh, genes and talk about chromosomes and stuff. I do want to uh, yeah. quickly ask, though, you, you had mentioned this, which is interesting. So, you know, people can have many opinions about Richard Dawkins now as he's in the twilight of his years and he's, you know, got his, you know, antiquated theories on some things and that's fair. Um, but really, I mean, I, I think, you know, selfish gene is, is important. It's important work. But I always liked the extended phenotype uh, the best. I thought that was a, a, a really good piece of uh, work that he put out. Again, I think some of the things we've, you know, are, are maybe not as true as we thought, but I think it's an important book to uh, engage with. You talk about this kind of sexual phenotype and how it would be congruent with Dawkins' uh, extended phenotype. Could you you talk about this performative yeah, action? I, I, I think one one for for those biologists who think that gender is like just like totally uh, strange concept that they don't want to have to scientifically engage with. Um, I would propose the you know, the alternative language and, and, and given the history of Dawkins and relations to the rest of, I don't share, this is the, actually the ultimate definition we want to, you know, defend, yeah. but I would defend it and say that, that essentially gender is the extended phenotype mm-hmm. of sex, mm-hmm. right? That it is, includes those cultural and environmentally um, uh, uh, inflected aspects mm-hmm. uh, of sex. Now, when Dawkins wrote the, uh, um, the, the extended phenotype, it was very much with the, uh, with the goal of, in essence, colonizing cultural, uh, um, culture itself, cultural, uh, thought, um, with the concept of adaptation by natural selection. Mm-hmm. So in his case, he, um, had, uh, you know, uh, uh, elaborated or intellectually elaborated the, the idea of, you know, those impacts of the phenotype that are beyond the body that exist in the world of culture or even the physical world, like a, like a beaver dam, mm-hmm. uh, but that are also influenced by that. And, um, and his idea, of course, that meant that culture would be adaptive too. Well, of course, you know, um, I think that, although it's extended phenotype is a very productive concept. I think the idea that it's going to prevent culture from having its own phenomenon, from having its own autonomy or agency to actually uh, determine uh, things, um, including things that are not, uh, many things which are not adaptive, uh, w- it, it is obviously um, very important. So, so um, uh, that's the, the way I would, I would propose it. Very differently from him, but, but I think it's also uh, very realistic. Mm-hmm. No. So tell us about, uh, I mean, obviously I've talked about it here. Many people are, have talked about, you know, genes and they've talked about DNA and the role of cells and things like that. But I guess in terms of how is the genome performative as opposed to just representative? And then you can yeah. talk about chromosomes as well and then things like that. Sure, sure. Well, let, 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 let's do, I think, because you, I think you asked me even earlier, but I, I did diverted. Let, let's go, let's go and just cover like gender performativity, yeah. right? The original philosophical uh-huh. proposal. This started with Judith Butler in, you know, 89, 90 and, and elaborated. It was an incredibly influential idea. And, and it was a reaction to the idea of, um, you know, early on when gender was identified, it was identified or, or theorized as a construction, right? Uh, that we construct these concepts and then people occupy them and that we can unconstruct them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and actually it was 
many feminists who realize, well, that doesn't make sense because obviously people are bringing a lot to this this individual uh, to to their their own gender, right? Uh, some people are very satisfied with what appears to be um, offered, and other people just have a lot of friction and and difference, mm-hmm. right? There is something constitutional that people bring, and so um, uh, Butler in particular wanted to identify that, and also to identify the specific mechanisms by individuals that develop gender, become gendered, if you will, mm-hmm. both through their own agency, their own direction, their own constitutive uh, idea of themselves, and also in interaction with the world, uh, in particular in, in what uh, Chief um, characterized as discourse, series of communication, structured events. So, so in that sense, the idea was that gender develops individually through a kind of uh, 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 um, social discourse with the world. What does that mean? That means interactions with parents. And, and, and peers and, 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 and uh, authority figures and the law, all of which provide subtle, not so subtle, uh, verbal, nonverbal messages about what kind of gendered behavior is appropriate for what kind of people or which individuals in, in, that, in that culture and time. So it has both a theory of how we individually become gendered. It has lots of other uh, structured and really cool ideas. The agency of individuals, that they're bringing something, but that agency is not alone. It becomes realized in uh, discourse, uh, communication with, the, with other agents in the world. And, and it also has uh, um, other properties. It's, a, it's an account of how gender becomes very conservative or can be constrained in ways. And at other times and places, how it can be innovated how it can be transformed. So it's a theory of stasis and innovation mm. at the same time. And then, and, and then lots of other cool details. Mm. In one of the most effective sentences, or to me, like profound sentences in this literature, Butler wrote that uh, performativity is the capacity of discourse to produce the phenomena that it regulates and constrains. Mm or to iteratively, reiteratively produce the phenomenon. Reiteratively, what does that mean? That means each individual becomes gendered on their own, in their own place and time, right? And that uh, it happens over and over again in each generation, right, uh, of individuals. Um, uh, uh, and, and, and discourse, that's the communication, and to produce the phenomena that it regulates and constructs. And when I read that sentence, you know, for the umpteenth time, I finally understood, I realized... That's one of the most efficient descriptions of molecular genetics that's ever been written, even though it was conceived entirely independently of, of the top. Mm. And, and, you know, and that's not an accident, right? I really think that performativity is a discovery about becoming that was made in queer feminist thought that is actually deeply true of biology, but biology for its intellectual and empirical structure has avoided discovery. And so, yeah. so, so how do you see it? How did you make the jump then to seeing like, well, how does this work in biology? So let's, so, so, so let's, 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 let's back off and think about how we go from a single cell to a trillion cells in a beautifully integrated body with all sorts of complexity and all sorts of capacities, right? Amazing, amazing thing. It's just, you know, it's just sort of stunning uh, complexity to imagine. Of course, that's 
the area of developmental biology, right? And, and what we've learned since the discoveries in the 1980s by uh, Yanni Nusslein-Vollard at the Max Planck Institute for Developmental Biology in, in Tübingen, Germany, she discovered, she and collaborators discovered in the 1980s that there are genes whose function is not in making the material body, the stuff of our, of our you know, the, you know, the actual materials, mm-hmm. but in regulating the expression of these of mm-hmm. genes, controlling how these, and, it, and what they are involved in is actually in signaling. So we know about hormones, right, which are signals, chemical signals that come from glands, organs at various positions in the body, they're released into the bloodstream, and then they, 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 uh, they cause effects or have, they're sensed by different cells. How do they work? Well, those cells have to create a receptor, and those receptors and those hormones bind, mm-hmm. and that binding initiates a cascade of events in that cell. Now, their whole parallel communication system that happens at the neighboring cells, they release molecules into the nearby environment, which diffuse to nearby cells, bind to receptors on those cell surfaces, and have the potential to influence those cells. What is going on? Well, what's going on is kind of like um, uh, uh, an organized becoming through discourse, through discussion. Cells are literally saying, I don't know, you want to become a liver? I don't know, I I can become a liver. Okay, well, let's all decide to be a liver. Mm -hmm. And then they stop talking to other cells that are not becoming a liver and end up with a, with a private communication, so molecular communications, right? Uh, these have both extracellular, like, uh, you know, uh, paraffin, what we call, you know, diffusing elements, hormonal elements, and then lots of complexity within the cell. If you look at how this process works, it um, has many of the properties of performativity that, that, um, that, um, that Butler outlined, right? In other words, it is a discourse, yeah. cells signaling each other, um, that regulates and constrains itself. That is the only thing that's helping these cells make decisions about becoming a liver or a kidney or a skin or bone cell are, are these networked molecular communications among other such cells, mm. right? It's, it's like a group community event. It is a social event, mm. a social event among the cells of the multicellular body, right? And, and um, um, that's a, you know, a radical kind of reframing of a lot of research that is completely consistent with this, with this idea. It's interesting. It's interesting. One of the challenges I'll just offer up right, right away is, is that it is, is, you know, agency. Well, yeah. do, are the cells making right. decisions? Right. Who's, who has agency, right? right, right. right? What, do you, what do you mean? And it's like, well, you know, in, 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 in human, um, cognition or philosophy, we think of agency as, you know, as a capacity for uh, a contingent response. Mm. Usually it's contingent on what we think of as a mental state. Mm-hmm. I'm hungry, so I'm going to go eat, right? Or, or I'm mad, so I'm going to go yell at that person. Or I, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sleepy, I'm going to go to bed, right? Um, so it's that mental state that, 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 it, that, our, that our actions are contingent that gives us this, this agency. Well, you know, um, it's quite obvious, you know, to, if you look at, say, an amoeba chasing around a bacteria, <laughs> right? 
it has agency. It is, it is hunting, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's an individual cell. We, you know, going back, you know, more than a billion years in our, you know, common ancestry. Well, we got trillions of such cells, mm-hmm. right, in the body, mm-hmm. right? Um, to imagine that somehow they're under the control of, for example, selfish genes is, uh, is frankly, you know, kind of silly. Mm-hmm. And the only way we can get that idea across is, is to by prevent ourselves from thinking about it. But in fact, you know, the agency of cells is only extending the agency of selfish genes mm-hmm. that everybody universally imagines as, oh yeah, logical, mm-hmm. to other things that actually act in the world. Because mm-hmm. genes, what do they do? They just sit there. Mm-hmm. They're acted upon. They're, they, right. they, they get reproduced by other mm-hmm. things. They, uh, they, they survive. They replicate. But they ain't doing nothing. Right. Right. It's a cell. It's the, it's the other yeah. cells and, and other molecules that are actually doing stuff in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that means that they are one performative, but it also means that they have agency, mm. right? And so if anybody's comfortable with the idea of selfish genes, they should be comfortable with the idea of, of, uh, of uh, both discourse and agency in the complex multicellular body. That's an interesting comparison. I haven't heard that one. Um, it's interesting because as you were talking, I, I just had a conversation with Kevin Mitchell who wrote a book called Free Agents. And he basically talks about uh, free will at... Uh, well, <laughs> free will. I mean, it, it, there's an agency that's going on at the cellular level. And the pushback I gave on this that I think he's got elsewhere, but it's a compelling argument. I'll give him, I'll give him a lot of credit. I don't, I don't dismiss it out of hand. It's the best, best argument I've heard for free will, I'll put it that way, is it's like, well, <laughs> A, we don't know that they have agency we're we're inferring based on what we know and things like that but also can we can we take a a human concept like agency or free will and then map it on to something so small as a cell to say that it has what really becomes the question here is intentionality and how could we know that how can we know it has intentionality um and you know what, what? What's ironic, of course, is that, is that you, you know, for 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 over fifty years, people have been arguing that genes have all this stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh. And those same people will be arguing that that's the only agency they're in. <laughs> right, that, right. that gene level selection, selfish genes, explained it all. That the body's just a vehicle uh-huh. for the propagation of genes. But of course, that's like irrational. Yeah. 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 Right. You know. And and uh, and uh, and what what what's really gonna what's really gonna make the differences is empirically does understanding the agency of cells and the agency of groups of cells and the agency of organs and the agency of tissues actually matter in science? Yeah. The answer, of course, is that yes. Yeah. Right. And that the, that the, that the idea that genetics is the actual answer to all of the interesting questions in science is uh, o- only made possible or only made tenable by the idea that we think when we're studying tissues that we're actually studying genetics mm-hmm. of tissues, yeah, yeah. right? It's that right? And so, 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 um, uh, it, this is going to be empirical and and uh, 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 empirically decided whether whether this concept of agency actually has work. But yeah, uh, I think it does. I mean, one of the interesting things that you know at the sort of the edges of evolution of developmental biology, we're realizing that tissues or cells in tissues, like in the in the in the limb bud for example, um, maintain um, various mechanisms. We don't actually know for all anatomy how they do this, but they are, they're, 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 um, their um, membrane potentials electrically are, are synced together. Mm. 
They may be doing those with tiny little tubes or they're actually sharing cytoplasm, et cetera, right? And then together in aggregate, they create a zone with a particular, uh, you know, membrane potential, but electrical charge. Hmm. And then that electrical charge actually influences gene regulation, hmm. right? And so the only way you can study this is by studying the electrical charges achieved by, by anatomically or physiologically coupled aggregations of cells in the mm-hmm. body, mm-hmm. right? And uh, a lot of interesting work being mm-hmm. done on that area. And the genetists are like, oh, you know, <laughs> but they're discovering this, of course, because the mutations that disrupt these birds are mutations of ion chains mm-hmm. uh, and other such uh, uh, maintenance of, 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 uh, of membrane potentials, yeah. right? And so that's a kind of, a, a, you know, neat area where uh, unless you actually think of this group of cells in aggregation having agency, you're not going to get the biology right. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I had a conversation with uh, Alfonso uh, Martinez Arias. He wrote this book called The Master Builder, and it's all about uh, cells. And, you know, he kind of makes the claim of, you know, look, we've overemphasized genes for so long, 50, 60 years, and, and maybe some of that was important as the science was new on it. And probably in the beginning, it was like, yeah, this is new, or you know, we're understanding this, we're getting the genome mapped, like all this stuff. So there was obviously going to pendulum swing, swing that way. But you know, his case is that, exactly what you're saying, cells are doing the work. They're the ones that are, are, are doing all the hard labor here. And really, a lot of the, the interesting things about you know, us and what's going on inside of us is in the cells and the different types of cells and, and all of these different components to it. And that's not to say that genes aren't important. And obviously you don't want to overemphasize cells either, but it is the bigger point that I take from all of this in terms of cells and genes and agency uh, and maybe intention is it is very hard for me, for I think most people, when you... <sighs> When you have something very confidently uh, educated to you or people have done the research themselves and they have these things and, and we hold on to the idea that we like and we say, yeah, this, this is true, quote unquote. And then you do more research and you do more science and you test it and you challenge it and you're like, oh, you know, we, we're learning more things and we need a new model and we need a new way of thinking about this. And that is very hard for people to let go of the way that they've been thinking about things. It's very difficult. Yeah. It's definitely difficult for me. It's difficult for a lot of people. Um, yeah. But I think that's I mean, what, where you see all this stuff come out. It's certainly difficult for scientists, right, too, because a lot of times, you know, we get invested in um, um, the way we think about things and the way we're trained, the actual tools that we have yeah. been yeah. Applying and we get they get super invested and so one of the appeals I really hope the book it, the really the book is for young people mm. uh, this book is for um, young aspiring scientists young queer folks who want to be find out how they relate to science mm-hmm. uh, their 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 families mm-hmm. and allies mm-hmm. and uh, and those who aspire to change science in a way that really improves the connection between science and the lives of, you know, the lived experiences of real people. Mm. And um, so uh, they're going to change the science by 
carrying this phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, and, then, uh, and then it'll just become good science. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So I want to ask, uh, in the middle of the book, you, you get into some of the details, <clears throat> and we can, we can you know, traverse different points here. Um, so we, we haven't talked about chromosomes. And for a long time, when people were talking about uh, sex, they would always talk about, well, the 23rd uh, pair is the sex chromosome, and you have the XX and the XY. Maybe just tell us about, you know, historically we've understood it this way, but what is, again, this kind of emerging consensus on the uh, saliency of chromosomes or not and any other new ways in which we're, we're thinking about this? Yeah, well, you know, um, it's true that um, for a long time, if you open up a textbook, right, you'll, you'll see um, the the... Uh, sex determination systems mm-hmm. uh, uh, in mammals is described as chromosomal, where XX is, uh, is female and XY is male. And, you know, um, that being the possession of the Y and with one copy of the X leads to a certain outcome and the possession of the X and X done. And, and, then, and then, you know, but we've actually discovered in, you know, over the last uh, 30 years, that, uh, that one particular gene on the Y called SRY, yep. sex-determining uh, region on the Y, it got its name from what they called it before they actually hunted down <laughs> and found out what the protein was that, that made there, right? And um, um, it, it has a, has a, has a, um, a potentially difference-making impact on, on, on development of the gonads. Hmm. In the case of humans, fascinatingly, we start off with the development of reproductive systems prior to the differentiation or the, the determination of whether those gonads or systems are going to be um, appropriate for producing eggs or sperm or, uh, or uh, you know, uh, delivering sperm or, 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 or gestating a, uh, an embryo in a, in a, in a womb, right? Um, so we start off with sexual anatomy that is bipotent or, you know, could, could go in various ways. And uh, when SRY is present, uh, it begins at about day 44 after um, to, um, fertilization to be expressed, turned on in certain cells within the bipotent gonad. The gonad's already there. And, and uh, its function, it is a, what they call a transcription factor. Mm-hmm. It is, its function is to, is to move after it's been made into a protein into the nucleus to bind on a promoter site upstream from a gene called SOX9. And if it turns on SOX9, then SOX9 has the phenomenon of turning on SOX9 itself <laughs> and other genes in other nearby cells that will also turn on SOX9. That is creating a cascade of events um, among cells of the development of the identity of we are going to become testis cells. Mm-hmm. Right. And so that's the, that's the, that's the, um, the idea. But if you actually, how do we find this out? Well, interestingly, most of the work on the complex molecular development of human sex, most of it is based on clinical presentation of people who are not, you know, the way they were expected to be, at least by their parents or society. Right. Uh, that is, um, uh, people that, um, are infertile or uh, raised as, as girls and never reach puberty or people with other obvious uh, disjunctions between uh, or combinations of, 
of, of characters, a, a scrotum mm. um, and a vagina at the same time, uh, all sorts of variations that can arise. Uh, and, and, and without uh, labeling anybody uh, 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 or, 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 or without their, without their consent, uh, you know, one way to refer to this is as essentially queer bodies. Mm-hmm. These are bodies that deviate from the expect, expected, uh, socially expected norms in, in, in various ways. And, um, and then people identify what kind of genetic variations they might have. They create mice there where we have the same kind of um, uh, uh, gene change, right, in them, uh, queer mice, if you will. And then we study how those uh, molecular signaling systems work in a different way than they did when they were intact in the original mouse. Or uh, we perturb them with... Uh, various kinds of experimental or chemical ways to try to understand how is this, how are these genes working, right? And one of the ways we find is, for example, you have uh, um, completely fertile individuals that have a copy of SRY that accidentally at some point in the past crossed over during, during meiosis and, and was actually present mm. uh, either wholly or in part on the X chromosome. Mm. And these people are XX and they're completely fertile males or many of them are fertile mm. males. Right. And they exist. So there you got proof that X, Y does not create, you know, uh, uh, a male when you have the gene SRY. So then we move from the chromosome level to the SRY as the explanation. Mm. Right. But then we have other patients presenting in, 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 in clinical settings um, where we find a whole host of different ways in which SRY uh, can fail. Mm. Right. Or where SOX9 can fail, or where other sorts of any of the many cascade, you know, the really dozens of players involved in the realization of complicated uh, sexual body, and 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 so what we what we what we get in aggregate from um, the consideration of variation in sexual morphology that exists in human populations at you know not extraordinarily rare. We're talking one in 2000, one in a thousand, or some of these major changes when we start observing them. Um, um, we find that, you know, all of these stories uh, about how we might define sex or the critical role of XYZ or, or how certain genes are necessary and sufficient for the creation of sex turn out to be, to be evasive. Why? Because some other genetic variation, each one of these genes actually functions through a network of other genes, upstream and downstream. And those other variations matter. And this gene can't actually determine anything. You know, we, uh, the, the SRY is often called the master switch. It's the master of nothing, right? It cannot determine anything. If anything, you know, it, it has been characterized as, you know, um, uh, uh, you know in, it, it, with it all sorts of you know, a degraded, decrepit gene on a, on a degraded chromosome, right? It has, it has numerous problems. And, and um, um, that, that, that phenomenon shows that sexual bodies are a becoming, a becoming that is the product of this discourse, all of this molecular signaling among hosts of cells, mm. both a uh, 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 Paracrine signaling, cell cell signaling, and in the case of, uh, 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 of, of many XY bodies, uh, 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 hormonal signals as well. Hmm. Where does, with SRY, <clears throat> where does the, in, in the development of uh, reproductive organs, 
uh, or parts where it is. Um, I always find the the Mullerin and, and Wolfian ducks super fascinating, right? Because you you literally will yeah. be the same. You know, you can literally just split at one, and it really is kind of the same. Uh, I don't well, want to use blueprint, but it's a kind of a same kind of mapping of sorts, right? Almost, it was like, oh, well, 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 let, 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 let's stay with the gonad because we went we went down one path, okay. one one canonical path to to test this development, uh-huh. right? And there's the alternative, of course, is 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 uh, 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 ovary yeah. development. And what's interesting is that um, there's a long tradition going back, you know, 30 years or more to see, and this is even taught in intro bio, right? You know, uh, here and elsewhere. Uh, that 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 male development is determined by SRY, and that female development is a is a default. <laughs> that means just like you know, I don't know, a ball rolling downhill with no active properties of its own, mm. right? Uh, and I think this is a complete misreading, right? And so what what we do see is that both. Development of testis identity and 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 ovary identity. Once you have those cells, one of the things that those genes do that are critical to the creation of an ovary is to suppress the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So certain genes like uh, FGF nine are created in cells that are expressing SOX nine and actually suppresses Wnt signaling, which is critical to development of an ovary. Mm. Ovaries are also producing. Uh, uh, genes uh, that suppress the development of testes. So one of the jobs of an ovary is to prevent that ovary from becoming a testis Mm. and vice versa. Mm. So if for that reason, we know that ovary development is not a default, it's an action, Mm -hmm. it's Mm. a coming, it is an assertive. But why? Because it's asserting that it's not going to become a testis. Mm. And so what that means is that the, the path, unless SRY acts first, earlier in development, before ovaries are developed, then it'll be shut down by the existence of ovaries. So SRY has to happen first. And if it doesn't happen, then, 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 then wind signaling will, uh, will, 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 will induce uh, the development of an ovary. Um, and so, so um, um, and that's how you go from, you know, XX bodies grow up with um, genes that are the common denominator. They're found in all individuals. But XY bodies include just a few genes that are found only in, in, in XY individuals. And so they can have um, uh, um, a, a critical impact. Uh, what would you call it? A, 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 a make the decisive difference makers in development. But the difference that SRY makes is not the difference between male and female. It's the initiation of a pathway or another that, that uh, leads to other possibilities. And of course, doesn't determine all the other steps down that pathway. That's why it's not sufficient for uh, the creation of, of a canonically male body. After you have gonads, of course, then you got to develop, you know, the tubes, right. the tubes that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that their process. And you go with your, you know, uh, Mullerian ducts and Wolfian ducts. And now in the gonad and in the external genitals, we see a thing where the, the, the body develops a set of anatomies, which themselves develop in various ways. But in the case of the tubes in mammals, in placental mm-hmm. mammals, and they actually the ancient homology early on in, 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 in vertebrates is not actually well understood. Mm-hmm. But it, we have the embryos develops two sets of tubes. Mm-hmm. And in one case, one is abandoned and the other are developed. 
and the opposite, the other is suppressed and the other ones develop, right? And those are the, the Wolfian and, and, uh, and Mullerian ducts. Mm. Now, the, in, in, uh, in XX bodies, typically in the presence of an ovary, the, 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 um, the uh, Mullerian ducts, which are double, start fusing at the cloaca or at the, you know, the, 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 what will become the anus, mm-hmm. essentially, uh, or the cloacal opening. Uh, and, then, and then they zipper together to create the inner portions of the vagina. Uh, and ultimately, they stop zippering together. And the fallopian tubes are the areas where the, they're, they're not zipped together. So they have this, this developmental event. Mm. In the presence of a testis, however, the mullerian, uh, anti-mullerian hormone will knock out those mullerian system and the wolfian system will develop into uh, the male reproductive tract, but typically in response to uh, hormone signaling by the testis, in this case, uh, dihydrotestosterone, which is inside each cell um, um, created from testosterone released by the testis and, and floating around in the, in the bloodstream. So then we get this, 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 this bifurcation. And what's fascinating, of course, in, in, in developmentally is that um, many different kinds of variations can occur. They are all what you would call discourse um, moderators or discourse uh, changers, right? So if you, you could have a problem where you're not making this, the hormone, you could have a problem where you're not receiving the hormone, and both of those will lead to the absence of that event, right? Or, for example, if you um, um, have problems sensing uh, testosterone in the body, your testes will make anti-Mullerian hormone, which will knock out your um, Mullerian ducts, preventing the development of uh, any of them. But also the absence of testosterone signaling will lead to an absence of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of, uh, of complete development of the, some of the other, uh, the, the, the Wolfian duct tubes. So lots of other, you know, combinations can occur within, within embryonic development. Yeah, and I understand, uh, I guess, that, that uh, this is in placentals, you know, it's talking about it, but in marsupials, it's a little bit different, actually. The, 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 the tubing is, is, <laughs> is very different. No, well, what, what are, one of the fascinating things about, about sexual development, and this is more evolutionary argument, is how amazingly variable it is. Yeah. So you think, here we are, you know, making testes or ovaries is evolved, you know, in our common ancestor with starfish. We're talking over yeah. 500 yeah. million years yeah. ago, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 And you'd think it's like, and, 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 and there are no bodies, no new individuals getting made without them. Mm-hmm. So you think they're as critical as possible to fitness, yeah. to evolutionary, to reproduction. Yeah. And yet, the way in which you actually do that is wildly yeah, variable, yeah, right? Yeah. And it's like you think, set it and forget it, you know? <laughs> like, hey, this is it. It's set it and forget it, right? But, you know, um, but no, you can't do it. And why? And, 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 and so what's, what's interesting in, in, Marsu, in, sorry, in, um, in monotremes, mm-hmm. platypus yep. and, uh, and echidna, they have, uh, you know, echidna has five X's and five mm-hmm. Y's. So if you've got, X1 through 5, X1 through 5, two copies of those, you know, 10 X's, mm-hmm. then you're female, and mm-hmm. 5 X's and 5 Y's, you're mm-hmm. male. And it turns out they are historically unrelated to X and Y and us, mm-hmm. 
right? And so that means they're, uh, you know, uh, uh, the same kind of uh, uh, chromosomal differentiation with, with what we call heterogametic males, males making sperm that have either all X's or all Y's and therefore having an influence, of, you know, maybe a decisive influence on the chromosomal contributions of, of the offspring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have heterogametic males, uh, but completely evolutionarily independent of us. It's discovered independent. Mm-hmm. So that's fascinating because that means that the common ancestor of in which fur mm-hmm. and mammary mm-hmm. glands evolved mm-hmm. uh, did not have XY chromosomes. Mm-hmm. So the mammary gland is older than the X chromosome, older than XX, right? Which means that there is, n- and uh, you know, that nothing essential about mm-hmm. uh, about uh, uh, about uh, XXness and, <laughs> and 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 provisioning the mammal provisioning of of, of, of through through milk, um, uh, it, because it's a so so. What is essential about the body that could be alternately determined by these kind of X chromosomes, or as we see in birds? Uh, Males are ZZ and females are ZW. Female birds have the are heterogametic. They lay an egg that has genetic variation that can contribute to sexual development of the of the offspring, right? And and of course, as we as I started out, you know, ducks have a penis mm-hmm. that's homologous with the human penis. It's shared from a common ancestor, and yet in birds, it's a result of having no mm-hmm. chromosomal differences, and in Mammals, it's a result of some of having chromosomal differences. Mm. And, and so what could be essential about the zygote, about the body, that could be alternately turned out by a totally different mechanism, or as we see in crocodiles, temperature dependence? Mm. And the answer is nothing, mm. right? So the evolutionary argument also supports the kind of uh, absence of essentialism mm. that's uh, it's core to the performative idea. Where does the role of, of hormones fit in here? This is another piece that people have uh, you know, talked about at different points and different ideas on this. But in terms of the development of reproductive organs or, or, or just the development of humans, where does, in terms of sex and things like that, where does uh, hormones actually fit uh, here? Yeah, well, what's, what's, uh, what's interesting, of course, hormones uh, have similar impacts to, to what I call paracrine signals. The paracrine signals are released by neighboring cells and they just uh, diffuse literally in the space between the cells and then are, and then are inflicted. But hormones are systemic. Mm. Um, a gland, pituitary, uh, testes or ovaries or what have you, uh, adrenal glands, uh, make these molecules and they circulate in the blood where they are basically um, um, exposed to every cell in the body. And those cells that actually express receptors to receive those signals have a potential to, uh, to, to, to respond, mm. right? So they're systemic, if you will. Mm. Uh, and actually, that's another way to look at the agency of cells, right? I mean, they have agency to either listen in on some hormone or just ignore it, mm. right? That's part of cell development is to decide or for the cell itself what what kind of communications am I going to attend to? Am I going to listen to? Mm. Um, so obviously uh, in the adult body or after birth, uh, at, at, uh, at, uh, at uh, puberty, uh, hormones produced by the, the gonads have a big impact on secondary sex characters and on the production of, 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 uh, of reproductive biology. However, you know, we think of them as sex hormones, but what's fascinating is that new recent research has showed that, they, that you know, that's only one of the things they do. And that it's actually quite confusing. It turns out that testosterone 
is essential to ovulation. Mm, yeah, yeah. There is no way, and, and part of some of the problems with fertility are actually not enough testosterone. Or if you have problems with testosterone or fertility, people are boosting their testosterone and trying to make their eggs ovulate so that they could do uh, in vitro fertilization at say when they're uh, you know reproductively uh, challenged in mm. some way. Um, likewise, estrogen is essential for uh, for uh, for sperm mm-hmm. uh, production. Mm-hmm. And for bone uh, maintenance of bone calcium in all individuals, mm-hmm. right? So they're not just sex hormones, yeah, yeah. right? They're, 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 sex is one of the things mm-hmm. that the body uses their hormones to affect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's, again, you know, when, when, when I was in school, we, we kind of learned it that way. And, but I, I have read and talked to people since then. It was like, well, yeah, it's used for sex, but it's not only used for that. It's sort of a misnomer that it's just primarily for sex and to be called sex hormones. Um, they have many other uses and that we, we see them, uh, you know, all, all across the, the spectrum here. So you talk about yeah. uh, uh, towards towards the end. You talk, you talk about um, these variations in sex uh, differences, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. Um, so how do we we understand this? So maybe we can we can talk about um, uh, some of the aspects of uh, in humans at least. I don't I, mean, I know there's I guess in some other species as well uh, folks that are. Um, what we would say intersex and there's a whole spectrum here of all of these different things uh, going on. Did you talk about this variations here that, that we see and that yeah. we know and, and how do we, uh, in, in the kind of framework you're uh, uh, positing here, how do we make sense of this? Well, the first, the first, the first thing to do um, is, is to um, step back from the biomedical, uh, you know, endocrine, tradition of pathologizing uh, sexual difference, right? And, and, um, and, and, and realize that especially the, the early 20th century literature, prior to surgical intervention, prior to full understanding, um, documents the, you know, the rich, complicated, fascinating lives of people that we would now refer to as intersex. Right. And and unfortunately, um, um, in, you know, the study of sexual variation, sexual difference is been used by the medical community to constantly reinforce the existence or the concept of a, of a binary. Right. So you take these queer bodies and queer individuals and you study them, you identify genes and you say, oh, this is how that's broken. Right. But when, from a performative perspective, one realized that that bodies are not a, realizing or representing a sexual essence, but becoming uh, themselves in a reproductive way. Um, you know, intersex and other sex differences are not evidence of the binary gone wrong. They're evidence that the individual sexual binary doesn't exist to begin with. Right. And so each one of us is becoming in a path using the, uh, what I would call historically derived, uh, you know, resources available in the genome to achieve uh, the phenotype. And of course, you know, the vast majority of people end up in a target area with a capacity to reproduce in, in, in certain structured ways, right? Uh, but, uh, but many do not. And, and, uh, 
I mean, myself, I um, tend to shy away from the term intersex, although I understand it as, a, as a fa- an important and powerful uh, cultural and political organizing tool, because I think it reinforces the idea that there are two binary things to be in between. Yes, many uh, intersex people have uh, uh, combinations of traits that might otherwise be found in only one one sex, but lots of these features, lots of these variations, differences uh, are, are are within uh, uh, you know what's traditionally called the sex category, or not. and and of course many of them are in no way pathological other than sure. uh, their 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 impact on um, on uh, on parents and uh, and surprised. <laughs> other individuals. Right. And, and so, uh, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the entertainment of sexual difference makes us realize the performativity of everybody, everybody, each one of us is uh, making it up as we go along with the tools, uh, that, you know, the information resources that came in our genome in the environment in which we live. Right. And that's a, you know, a powerful conclusion for the whole body, not just for the the, the, the reproductive parts. Mm-hmm. So you, uh, you, you've, you've said that this is uh, performance all the way down, which is the title of the book. But at the end you say, well, is it performance all the way up? Uh, so how do we understand this, I guess, this intersection between biology and as you say, queer feminism, uh, how do we understand the framework? Oh, you know, the, the, the first, the first part is, you know, if you, um, it, it, you know, to support the idea of, in a genetically and scientifically defensible way uh, that the body is a performance, uh, a performance of the self, you know, I had to go way into the weeds. <laughs> so you can't name it performance all the way down and not go all the way down, right? I got, you know, right? And so, so uh, the, and, and, um, uh, and it's a bit exhaustive, but I think that's also a feature that shows, you know, it's not just about one story. It's about all these stories and all these myriad of ways in which, um, you know, variation arises, sexual difference arises, right? So, um, but of course, the project also is to reconnect biology to the culture in a new way that's productive. And so, so in the last chapter, performance all the way up, I wanted to go, okay, well, let's, let's, Given we've we've established evidence of the performative body uh, uh, genetically, how do we how do we uh, how do we think about about the culture? And what I go through kind of uh, 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 historical analysis, thinking of like origin of life, <laughs> major events of the evolution. What in what ways do the, the the you know fundamental features of the performative phenotype or or performative regulation of of, of gene expression occur? Sex, the origin of sex, the origin of of uh, of, 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 of of gonochory or separate sex bodies, males and female bodies, uh, uh, or bodies making separate uh, uh, or distinct kinds of 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 uh, of, uh, of of gametes, etc. And and what I really what I really want to establish is that you know this biological performativity is uh, the first performativity the first place in which discourse uh, developed and that it's only through the establishment of complex multicellular bodies, which then have the capacity for psychology and behavior, another rich area of performativity, 
uh, which then have the capacity for culture, which then have the capacity for gender, each which then have the capacity for arts and literature and other kinds of complicated uh, 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 cultural and other phenomena, um, that this that this queer gender performativity that we're used to as being the topic is 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 supported by uh, you know a hierarchy of of kind of performative performativities right and and that um, that this has the power to you know restructure the conversation and research at the interface of 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 the social world and and the material the body mm. the body mm. now in particular i think that one of the reasons that this topic is urgent one of the reasons why an ornithologist would uh, write a book that has almost no birds in it and, you know, feel that it's a real, there's a, there's is, a few in there. The there's a few in there. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they make a cameo. Uh, parrot feet. Yeah. Exactly, sure. so, uh, but um, we, uh, it, it, one of the reasons why, why, why I think it's important is because, you know, um, biological science has been uh, rarely leading the culture in terms of understanding um, the social and cultural damage that we do, right? And and you'd have to say that uh, you know this includes eugenics, the, the powerful history of racist scientific theories of 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 of, of, of human improvement yep. and, and 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 human social domination, uh, uh, the, the the origin of 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 of, of flattening conceptions of masculinity and femininity, you know that persist, uh, causing uh, lots of havoc. And then, of course, you know, is even being used today, appealed to today as, as a reason uh, to adopt, uh, you know, horrible laws, uh, uh, you know, outlawing uh, medical treatment for, uh, for trans youth and, uh, and making it uh, financially difficult and politically difficult for, 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 for trans people of any age. Right. Uh, you know, so there's a lot of, uh, you know, people are saying, you know, trust the science appealing to that, that tradition. Right. As it, and, and, and so it's really important for science to reconsider what, how do we contribute to this and how can we change that? How can we create a science of gender sex that appropriately addresses and ameliorates the history of harms that science has been uh, involved in? And, and so I think that reframing of the relation to the culture and especially to sexual difference in, in, in our culture, gender sex difference in our cultures, is, 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 is an important, fascinating mission. And so that's what I try to do at the end. And I argue that, you know, biology needs queer theory to get the body right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Queer theory is a discovery that, that the, the blueprint and the experimental controlled concepts within, within biology have prevented biologists from discovering. Mm. And that there's something that scientists can learn about science from people who aren't scientists. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know? And, and, and that, that is profound. And also, I wanted to make sure that this is done in the language of, of queer culture. Mm right, in the language of queer theory, that is to create an intellectually queer space in the heart of evolutionary biology so that a new generation of scientists can 
study the relationship between the genotype and the phenotype in a, as a way of explicitly addressing or, uh, or, or incorporating their own queer identities or queer allyship in their research, that they can realize science as queer people that is at the cutting edge of science itself, mm. right? And, and, and so that's what this is. It's a really appeal to young folks, young aspiring scientists to help queer biology. Mm. Now, uh, why queer biology? Well, I think there are going to be a lot of upsides. <laughs> but in fact, you know, on the long term, once this is, you know, queer is always a relative term, you know, um, not specifically any defined thing, but always a response or a, a difference from the normative. And I think over time, as these ideas become incorporated and mainstream, we begin to change the textbooks, begin to change how we think, begin to fund science, uh, understanding the hierarchical formativity of the body and that relation to psychology and culture, it'll just become good science, mm. right? It won't be queer anymore. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's the, that's the long term. That's what I'm, that's what I'm aspiring to. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. You lay it out very nicely. The, uh, the book is called Performance All the Way Down, Genes, Development, and Sexual Difference through uh, Chicago Press. Anywhere you want to point people to, uh, Richard? Any, any, any place in particular? Sure. Well, I, I got a copy right <laughs> here. So that's what it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yep. You, 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 you can identify it across the, across the room uh, in, in a bookstore. Uh, yeah, get it wherever books are sold. Uh, and uh, maybe because it's academic press, it might be harder to find and Every Barnes and Noble, but if people go out and buy it, maybe that maybe that'll change. Mm-hmm. Having uh, having having uh, uh, <laughs> well, look, this was this was so much fun. I was so happy to get you on again, and um, really just kind of marching us through all of this stuff in such a a clear and really informative way. And I hope it, it just creates more discussion and dialogue with people. So I'm I'm so happy that you did this. It's always always fun having you on here. Big 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 thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Javier. And, and really great uh, to uh, have the opportunity to, uh, um, uh, at length and with care, uh, talk about uh, all these topics. But uh, hopefully it's, 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 it's clear as a bell in the book. Absolutely. Absolutely. Big thanks. Thank you so much.